listening to SBS on the Money with Ricardo Gonçalves. Hi everyone, it's a daily 10-minute business and finance news wrap for this Thursday, the 12th of January 2023. Later, will China's economic reopening actually add to the world's inflation woes? But first, to small business, and only one in four have a disaster plan which could help them continue to operate in the event of floods or fires, for example. For more, I spoke earlier with the Australian Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman, Bruce Bilson. Well, most small businesses are very time poor and they're really focused on working in the business rather than on it. And maybe a business continuity plan or disaster plan is not front of mind. What we're doing is urging people to make it more of a priority to realise that preparedness helps navigate a disaster. And that disaster, Ricardo, could mean even an adverse health event for the business owner. Uh, Help navigate that and be in the best position you possibly we can to recover on the other side. We've seen lots of natural disasters though lately, the likes of floods especially and in the past bushfires and the likes. Why do you think these businesses need such a plan? Well because nature's being less kind to us these days and the UN itself has called out that climate change is playing a role there. More frequent natural disasters, greater severity and sadly we've seen some businesses that have had to navigate more than one natural disasters, throw in a bit of COVID and all the consequences of that, that's a tough time. That's a tough time. And those uh, dislocations to a business, if we're not well prepared, if we haven't thought about contingencies, where's our key data, how are we going to recover, that makes those disasters, those challenges even more harmful and makes recovery a real problem. So this uh, natural disaster plan will allow businesses to continue operating or at least get help quicker when they need it. So what are the key checklists that they should go through? Well, we produced a checklist with some really practical advice that I hope uh, your audience may turn its mind to. It's on our website, asbfeo.gov.au. And they're checklists and resources that say, well, where is my critical information? Have I stored business vital material in the cloud? Can I easily recover it? Do I have my contact list of my insurer or other parties that can help me uh, support and recover? Do I know what the action steps are I can take? When I'm overwhelmed by events, it's not a great time to be working through, you know, what your priorities are. To think about those things now makes it really a more streamlined process to activate. Mindful, a small business owner is also a parent, a partner, uh, maybe a contributor to the local emergency service uh, service organisations, uh, a community leader. So there's not just that to challenge, not just the business to think about. There is a broader context that can be factored into those plans and preparations. Now, you've visited uh, 36 communities across Australia mm. that have been impacted by natural disasters. You've heard directly from these small and family businesses. What did they tell you? Yeah, a few, few key things came out. First of all was, gee, we, we wish we'd known about things before that we know now. So what we're trying to do is pick up those learnings and put them in front of people prior to an event so that all that wisdom can be deployed in a positive way. Secondly, they're saying, look, if I'm going to be preparing for my response and my mitigation activities, can I count on the kind of support that might be out there? What does it look like? And a greater degree of predictability would be good. We also heard a strong message that business particularly small and family businesses aren't always front of mind in the emergency service planning and response. And that some of those concerns, you know, an early shutdown of a town makes 
clearing out valuable stock that might be part of your plan really difficult to do because once you've had an evacuation order, workers' compensation stops, team can't be involved, you can't get in, those sorts of things. And I guess finally in the response phase, Ricardo, knowing where that help will be located, perhaps a support hub, having a triage arrangement where there might be multiple government departments and agencies, non-government organisations and even the private sector ready to help, to be able to be navigated through those choices, have the impacted business tell their story once, have that information then shared appropriately, uh, and then get the help that's most relevant to their situation. That was some of the key recommendations that came out. So of those key recommendations, there's 16 of them, what happens now? Well, some of them, the flavour of them have been embraced by the current government. Minister Murray Watt and Minister Julie Collins have been really interested in this work. And you've seen uh, the ministers trying to have a greater degree of predictability to the support that's available. There's also a broader discussion about more investment in preparedness and resilience. As you would know, Ricardo, of the taxpayer spending when it comes to disasters, 97 cents in the dollar is after the event. And, you know, we can do things prior to the event, strengthened infrastructure. You know, if there's a, a mobile phone black spot program going on, make sure it's robust and doesn't fall over the minute there's a breakdown in, in electricity supply. The key roads that are arterial connections for, you know, exiting a disaster prone area that they're not too vulnerable. And even some of the strategies about cloud based services, you know, we all encouraging businesses to go to the cloud huge digital systems, um, nothing quite like when your ATM goes down and everyone's busting to find cash, uh, how challenging that can be. So there's real interest from government. We're welcoming that and uh, uh, really pleased to see that these practical recommendations from lived experiences are being treated with, uh, with great interest. Bruce Bilson there, the Australian Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman. Now to the Australian share market, which closed at a five-week high. The S&P ASX 200, 7,280. That's a rise of 1.2%. For more, I spoke earlier with Evan Lucas. He is the Chief Market Strategist at InvestSmart. Yeah, it's all on the premise idea that inflation's peaked, isn't it? I mean, it's an incredible sort of reaction that we're seeing across global markets. I mean, the ASX is up 3.5% year-to-date. If you look over in the US, about the same. It's had four days in a row. And it's all leading into tonight, let's point out there, about the US CPI reading around the fact that inflation in the US particularly has peaked. The consensus is for 6.5%. That's quite a step down from where it was before. We're talking about mid to high sevens to six and a half percent. That's the consensus estimate. And everybody's putting that as the idea that if inflation is easing off that quickly, the probability of the US Federal Reserve and the RBA and all these other central banks having to continue to go through their 2022 path in 2023 gets remotely removed. But it's a big risk from my personal point of view in the fact that if you look at the data Spending in the final quarter of the calendar year last year was still really strong. There was still a lot of volatility in pricing. Food was up and down. Energy pricing was up and down. So the risk that inflation is actually still rising is there. And I think that may be a catch for markets that have got very, very excited by this whole, whole idea could come crashing down really quickly. I guess the, the other factor, too, is that we, we're going to get an indication of on how U.S. corporates are performing in this period, too. What's the market expecting to come out of the reporting season, which starts on Friday? It starts on Friday. So JP Morgan's the one to watch in terms of that bellwether now with that firing off from that space. 
it's all very pessimistic. And, and I think that also needs to be pointed out. And some are arguing it's too pessimistic. If you look at the consensus estimates across the board, they have slashed earnings, slashed expectations around profit. And they're also even going after revenue too. They expect revenue to be declining between 2 and 5% across the board. It's not hard to argue considering that final quarter of the year, you're getting all sorts of you know, forward-leading indicators. You look at Amazon offloading staff well and truly ahead of the Christmas period, FedEx doing the same thing, UPS doing the same thing, rumours that, you know, spending was at the lowest level that it had been in a Christmas period for several years. You know, you look at Tesla as well, Tesla having to start to really downgrade their outlook with, even though they had a decent production number, their overall revenues there. So you put it all together, the pessimism on Wall Street around earnings is there. So again, the market suggesting, is it too pessimistic? Have they gone too hard? Has the sell-off that happened from about the 15th of December last year to the close of business on the final day of the year been too, too strong? So all of that probably feeds into it as well. Um, add China to this mix, though, because inflation there today came out at 1.8% annually. Given its economic reopen, do we expect inflation there to become as big of a problem as we've seen it in the rest of the world? Or, or is China in a different position? And what will that then mean for global growth? So listening to The Economist and also you know, what we see is, yes, it will be. I mean, we know from the historical data or the very short historical data of the post-COVID world, that spending and almost the you know the FOMO lifestyle, the fear of missing out lifestyle, really kicks in. And China, let's be honest, has been locked up for two and a half, three years. They have a middle class ready to really burst at the seams that you know are looking to go on overseas trips, that are looking to consume, that are looking to to basically start living their lives again rather than being under the constraints of a COVID zero policy. So it's not just an Australian-centric story that we saw at the end of 2020 and the end of 2021 where, you know, the, the lockdown reopening happened in Victoria and New South Wales, and you saw that explosion. You've now got 1.3 billion people that are about to do the same thing. So the argument is that clearly that there will be inflation in China because there will be this boom, this driven number about starting to live your life again. And, and that's a risk. And you can see that already with regards to what people are forecasting coming out of China in the second half of the year as that wave gets through, whether it happens really quickly, like some are saying by March, or if it takes halfway through the year, there will be a recovery. And and it will be strong. It's China as well. Not only that, economically, Xi Jinping and his, you know, his overall group need to improve the economy of China. It's been in the doldrums for two and a half years, and, and they can't continue without starting to drive that forward. So economically, it makes sense to drive it forward. China will therefore export that inflation to the world, and it needs to be fully aware that that is coming globally very, very soon. Evan Lucas there from Invest Smart. This SBS On The Money podcast is provided for informational purposes only. The content on this podcast should not be understood as constituting advice or a recommendation. It is not personal advice and does not consider your personal circumstances or objectives. You should contact a licensed professional before making any financial decision. Financial decision.